Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen. My guest today is going to be Troy Murphy. He's one of my really good friends, known him a really long time. Troy was a mogul skier on the U.S. ski team for over six years. He was a U.S. national champion, one of the best in the world, and he also represented the U.S. in the 2018 Olympics. Troy is also now the head coach for Park City Freestyle's mogul team and an avid big mountain skier and filmer. He also has a vintage Mainer alter ego named Donnie Pelletier. I hope you enjoy In the Arena and Troy's journey of successes and failures so far. We are live. Ladies and gentlemen, Troy Murphy. How are we doing? Doing excellent. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on, dude, doing the uh, first episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Now, we've known each other for a long time, but uh, for some people out there that might not know uh, Troy Murphy, why don't you just give us a little, uh, little quick, quick rundown. Yeah, my name is Troy Murphy, obviously. I am uh, originally from Maine, from small town Bethel, Maine, and uh, grew up out skiing with my passion for my whole life. So um, uh, ended up competing for years after high school, made the U.S. ski team in, uh, in mogul skiing, and then I uh, went to the 2018 Olympics in moguls. And then since then, I've been kind of doing a little more school and skiing for fun. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the very brief story. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Now, one of the uh, crazy things um, when I was looking up and checking out Bethel, now, it's a town of like 2,700 people. So it's pretty pretty small. And for you to be one of four people, uh, essentially every four years that gets to represent the U.S. in the Olympics, to come from such a small place like that is uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, it, I think it is for sure. It's a small ski town, so um, that it's definitely like a, that classic town where the population fluctuates depending on the time of the year. Obviously, there's a lot more people in the winter there, but um, for me, it was like an ideal place to come from because it's not very saturated with a lot of athletes like that, and so I was able to get a lot of support from the community. A lot of people were, I think, more kind of invested in my journey than maybe they would have been if they were from like a park city where you can throw a rock and hit an Olympian or like an X Games athlete, you know what I mean? So yeah, I was super lucky to grow up there. It was a, a very small town community and it was like that classic analogy where, um, you know, it's like the village raises the, the, the athlete, I guess, would be the situation. Now, how did you uh, get started into it? Was it uh, Nancy or Matt that started getting you, uh, getting you on the slopes? Um, both of them, I think. They both, both my parents were skiers. Um, but not very, not like avid, but they were just like anything that they, I guess they didn't let me when I was a little kid, like kind of inhibit any of their activities. Like yeah. they would sandwich me on a dirt bike and go for like dirt bike rides. I remember that being really little, same thing on like a snowmobile. So I think it was like pretty much whatever they wanted to do outside, they would find a way to get me out there. <laughs> so I started skiing on it. Like they would have me in a backpack and they would ski. And then I graduated to like, the tether where like they put the tether around your waist and just hold you back so you don't go like careening down the mountain so right. i think it was both of them yeah it wasn't one or, or the other per se now how did you kind of happen upon uh moguls i don't i mean i've always been like the type of kid who was drawn to like tricks and being in the air and things like that like i used to do a thing in my room called the jumping game where I would like when I was really little I'd jump on the bed for hours um and then I'd get like a trampoline so I spend like the whole summer on the trampoline so I've always been drawn to that sort of 
sport. And then I remember like being a kid when I saw like skiers going through the park or like off the jumps in the mogul course, I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. I wanted to do that. So that's kind of how I like sparked my interest in it. Um, but then the local coach and, and at Bethel at Sunday River, Jeff Yingling, um, he was the director of the freestyle program and yeah. he actually rode dirt bikes with my family, with my parents and I. And so, yeah, he saw me riding dirt bikes one day and was like, that kid would probably be a good fit for freestyle skiing. And so he kind of invited me to join the team for a couple of days. How, how old were you then? Uh, I think like probably 10 or 11, something like that. Okay. Now how, um, how far is the mountain from where you grew up? Like 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Yeah. Pretty quick. Pretty yeah, quick so ride over there. So I, we would ski, but I, like we would maybe ski once a week, like on the weekends, or maybe not even. I don't really know. But once we, once I got involved in that ski program, it took a couple days to get the hang of it. But once I got hooked and made some friends, then it was like you know game on every, you know every weekend for sure and as many days as possible. Sounds like it was a pretty small program. That cool. Um, actually, back then it was kind of big. Like they had some guys who I think at that point were like on the Noram tour. Um, they had had guys like Marty Odlin, who was the, he was on the USQ team for some time and Jackie Peso, who's now on the Freeride world tour. She came out of that program. So, um, yeah, no, it was actually pretty big. Like we had a, a team room that everyone would base had in the weekends. And I bet there were like probably 30 to 40 kids around. That'd be okay. my guess. Yeah, no, it's pretty good size, especially yeah. compared to uh, a lot of other places. That's actually a pretty good, uh, pretty big program. Yeah, for sure. Back then it was. And then it, we kind of, it kind of tapered off as I approached high school. But we still had a good, like, a really, I had a really good group of friends that were doing it, which I think made a big difference. So around, like, 10, around that age, like, did you start to get more serious and more focused on it? Or were you pretty generic in, like, all different uh, areas when it came to skiing? Um, like, as far as just focusing on mobile skiing versus everything else? Exactly, yeah. Um, I was very focused on anything freestyle related, but not necessarily just moguls. So it was like moguls, park, pipe, I, anything like that. I loved doing. Um, it was probably not to like, I would compete in all those. I would do big air, uh, moguls and half pipe. And then probably around eighth grade is when I more started to just focus on moguls. Okay. And what was the driving force kind of behind that? Um, I, well, for one thing, I really liked it, um, because it, it kind of combined like a lot of the aspects of the sport into one, like you had to fit skiing, you had to ski fast, you had to be good at jumping. So it was kind of interesting that way. Um, and then I think I also had found some definitely, well, I actually found success in big mountain or in a uh, big air too, but probably more success in mogul. So that probably had a part of it. <laughs> and then, uh, I remember actually we had, we, yeah, for sure. And then we had a sit down one time with my parents and Marty Alden, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, the head coach at the time, Guy Cantrell, who was a, a French, uh, French guy who actually represented France in world championships, like in, I think, the 80s. And they were just like, pretty much, if you want to go somewhere in skiing, you're probably going to have to pick one. And they kind of like helped me make that choice of just sticking to moguls. Gotcha. Now... How soon after that did you start skiing like juniors and more kind of nationally and stick away from regionals? Yeah, uh, my whole path was pretty delayed. Um, so juniors probably, I would think like 
sophomore year-ish of high school, something like that would be my guess. And then I, my first nationals, I think I skied in my senior year of high school. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Because I remember the first, like, first time we met was what two? It was definitely like juniors. I remember with Doug, Dougie Horn. It was, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you probably you know, somewhere in there, just, like two thousand seven, yeah, two thousand eight. 2007, 2008, that sounds right. The first Waterville year, I think, was my first junior. Okay, first Waterville. Actually, no. Wait, was Steamboat before or after Waterville? Uh, Steamboat was before and after. <laughs> oh, I, may, I maybe went to the last Steamboat one before I moved to Waterville. That was probably my first. Okay, gotcha. Now, when did you decide to make the move out west? Because eventually you kind of made a decision to start training out in Park City. Yeah, so the timeline behind that was I, I graduated from Gould Academy in 2010. And then uh, the next two seasons, um, I joined Glenn Eddy, who's like kind of probably the most influential coach I've worked with over the years. And we kind of had like a smaller team based out of Maine, but we would travel all the time. So it was like myself and uh, Allison DeGravio. And then we'd have a couple of random like international athletes. Like we'd have yeah. uh, Life, who was skiing for Germany, Darius, who was representing Iran, um, Wu Cho, who was representing Korea, South African Brad was in the mix. So we had like <laughs> really Get a wide variety. Yeah, for a couple of years. And, um, and then after, I think, two years of that, then Glenn and myself both moved out west and joined the Park City team. So he joined as a coach, and I joined as an athlete. And that was in 2012-2013 season. So um, before it's, you were talking a little bit just kind of uh, about lagging behind and hmm. what was uh, being a little bit behind other people. Now, what was kind of your driving uh, force and just kind of closing the gap there? Why did you feel you were lagging behind? Um, so I didn't realize, that, like in high school, I didn't really realize I was behind, I would say. Like I was doing regional events and still doing pretty well, um, but never like broke onto like those national or NORAM events really. And so I kind of thought I was doing I thought kind of thought it was hot shit back then winning regional events and stuff but um but we weren't like the program wasn't really that intense then like it was just a bunch of friends we would obviously ski like on the weekdays and travel to regionals on the weekends but we weren't like it's not like we were traveling to Australia in the summertime to train like we would maybe water ramp for like a week or two at Lake Placid and we would maybe go to Whistler for a week but that was about the extent of our like summer training program so um I guess, yeah, just like the level of intensity wasn't really there. So when I graduated and joined Glenn's program, that's when like this whole other world of like intensity and training and like everything just opened up. I was like, whoa, this is, there's way more than I thought here. And also I'm way farther behind than everybody else. Um, but for me, that was like, I think that was almost one of the best things to happen. Well, yeah, probably one of the best things to happen to me because when I graduated high school, it was like, it just ramped up and there's a lot more to learn where I think a lot of kids my age had already experienced all that stuff. And so maybe they were kind of starting to plateau right when I was starting, sort of starting to like peak or, or ramp up. And the ramp up was starting. Yeah. So how many, what was that next step like? Because you feel like you're a little bit behind, you're starting to get a little bit more drive. What, uh, what was kind of your main focuses to kind of, get you further ahead like what were you, what were you thinking about what was your kind of game planning thought processes of getting yourself uh to where you wanted to go 
Um, yeah, I think the, well, like, it was tough because I had to work on everything. Um, but I was always, like, more natural jumper for sure. So I'd say, like, the first year with Glenn, like, I definitely spent a ton of time working on my jumps and kind of, like, relearning how to do them. But I was able to, like, get those to a really high level really quickly. And then so as soon as my jumping kind of achieved that level where it was, like, on par with some of the best guys who I was competing against, mm-hmm. then the focus definitely shifted to learning how to turn, like, turn technique. And that was pretty much, like, an ongoing battle for the rest of my career. Like, I always had to work more on turn technique than jumping. Sounds like you enjoyed the jumping. I definitely enjoyed the jumping, yeah. But beyond, like, just, like, the pure technical stuff, I think, like, Glenn helped me lay down a really solid foundation of not, like, focusing on – we weren't necessarily focusing on results. We were more focusing on, like, the run and laying down my best possible run. And so, like, especially in my early years, I would always do, like, my highest degree of difficulty jumps every single competition run, no matter what, just because we're kind of, like, laying that foundation, like, that pattern of being able to ski at that, like, highest, like, the peak level of your ability. And so that paid off big time towards the end of my career. Because I was never worried about normal. Yeah, I was never worried about, like, the big, like, trying to throw a big trick or trying to ski, like, as fast as I could, because I had done that forever. Like, that's all we did. So when would you say the first kind of big breakthrough kind of happened? Um, like result wise is easier, I think, to gauge than when like technical breakthroughs happen. But sure, result yeah, wise, results are good. Yeah, result <laughs> wise, I remember uh, I won junior nationals. I guess the second time it was in steamboat in duels, and that was like probably like the first big national based result I won. I beat mm-hmm. Nick in duels that was crazy because he was always fast and uh and then it kind of just slowly ramped up from there so like the next year again at steamboat i won or i got i can't remember if it was first or second overall but at selections i think i got third the first day second the second day and won the last day and that qualified me for some world cup starts so that kind of ramped up fast and that was crazy because i went from like not qualifying for the full Noram tour the year before that to qualifying for the World Cup for a couple of World Cups in action. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was like that. Those were the years when it really started to find some success. That was probably like 2011, 12, 12, 13 years like that. Okay, what was that? Was probably like Copper or something. Copper was the second selections I won. So the first one was Steamboat. The second okay. one was Copper the next year, and then I actually won the next one in Winter Park. The the following year yeah no no need for norams when you can just go right up to the to the big show right <laughs> yeah right. i never won on norams yeah. i only in one time that was it <laughs> so making that transition uh what's the first experience like when you're up uh, in the gate at a world cup yeah i how much does that change how much does that differentiate because i know uh skiing at regional level it's definitely not nearly as intense you got kids mm-hmm. of all ages trying to get better some are just there to have fun some are not there to take it that you know it's kind of just a wish wish wash of uh different uh athletes competing where at a world cup i mean that's the best of the best yeah i definitely i don't know why but i was a better world cup skier than a noram skier and maybe even a regional skier i think just because that intensity like once i got a taste of the world cup and that intensity level it was almost hard for me to go back to the lower levels and get maybe get as excited i don't know so yeah 
Yeah, I really like that. I remember, I like vaguely remember my first World Cup. I sometimes have foggy memory of things like that, but I remember just being in Lake Placid in the lodge, like when everybody got there in the morning and seeing all like, like Billado and Mick warming up and just like, that was a pretty surreal experience for sure. Yeah, did the whole, because uh, it was Placid, so the whole family, uh, they made the trek, I'm assuming. Oh, for sure. Quite right contingent now. there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, the, you know, like the training days, not so much. So that was like a little more, you know, just Glenn and I probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then after that, when do you, when's the, you fully qualify for the ski team, not just getting some World Cup starts? What year was that? was 2014, I want to say. Yeah. So, yeah, 2013 2014 season. Okay. Gotcha. So I qualified off the. I qualified off the points list in, at the, in the spring of 2013. Gotcha. That's right. That was at uh, Heavenly when I kept you, kept you waiting in the parking lot for like four hours after drug testing. Yep. That's when you had the longest drug test of all time. Longest drug test of all time. Well, I, well, I, they didn't tell you beforehand. You know, that drug testing process is a little bit interesting sometimes. They got to do it before and then after, right? Mm. But you, you passed. Guys that's the podium, you know, if I had known, I would have just – not gone to the bathroom then, but right. you know. Um, so then after that first uh, experience being with the ski team, how much does that change your life? That was kind of a slow transition for me too, actually, because I was fortunate enough to have Glenn and Chris Margetti, the, the Park City coach. Um, those guys had a couple different World Cup athletes. And so I was able that first year to kind of travel and train with the Park City crew and kind of like slowly blend into the ski team. So it wasn't like an immediate shock, mm-hmm. um, which I've definitely seen like some athletes have a hard time with that adjustment because it is a big adjustment. You're like, you're just finding like success. You made a huge career um, achievement. And then like all of a sudden the whole structure that you've been used to is gone. Um, so that's kind of a tricky one, I think, for people to, to deal with like that yeah. addition to totally new coaches. But yeah, I was lucky I had, I was able to do it slowly. So it worked out pretty well for me, actually. Not a lot changed, I wouldn't say. Right. So when you go through how much, uh, like when you're starting to go with the ski team now, what is what are the goals? What are the steps that you're kind of striving for? I mean, obviously everyone in mobile skiing wants to uh, ski at the Olympics and stuff like that. But what's kind of the, the structure that you set forth for yourself so you have the opportunity to be successful? Yeah, the, I mean, obviously, yeah, like you said, the long goals, the Olympics for sure. Um, and then before, like, other than that, it's pretty much all about World Cup results. And so you're just trying to ski as well as you can on World Cup. So I think, like, when I was first on the team, it was about making, you know, just trying to break into that World Cup final. And then once that started to happen, then it was about getting into the Super Final and then from there about getting onto the podium. So there's kind of a nice, like, progression goal-wise where you can see yourself getting on that path. Now, how much did your structuring for like setting goals and stuff like that kind of change as you kind of grew as an athlete? Um, I don't know. Like the, actually the nice thing about the ski team was it, well, maybe it's nice, maybe it's not, but it wasn't as much structured that like I had to do myself. It was more like you had people there helping you. So like the strength program was totally written out for you and you had your strength coach. So like the guesswork was taken out of it there um obviously the coaching staff would have like the whole summer training program laid out so as long as you showed up like that was pretty dialed um 
And so I guess it was like the day-to-day structure part of it was easier because, yeah, you just do, you just trust the program. But where you'd have to make sure you were on top of it was just making sure that you showed up every day training like as hard as you could and, and wanting to get something out of it. Uh, and the last year, my last years on the ski team, I started working with a sports psychologist named Craig Manning. And he like really helped me dial in my like day-to-day goals and, and like journaling, that kind of stuff. That made a huge difference. I wish I had had that when I first got on the team. Gotcha. Now he was what? Fearless Mind? Yeah, Craig is Fearless Mind. So I actually haven't connected with him for a while. Last I knew he was like doing a bunch of stuff with multiple teams, like bigger sports teams. I'm not sure what it is what he's doing now, but I'm sure the fearless mind is something you can still, he's got a book. I think you can still look up his website probably too. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 2015 is a pretty good year for you. You come through what that was a national champion that year. You get skiing your first, uh, world championships. Yeah. Yeah. The year like the competitive year before nationals didn't, I mean, I didn't get to ski at world champs, which is a super cool experience. Uh, other than that, I didn't have like a ton of successful results. They're they're decent, I think. But uh, and then I pulled it out at the end there and won national. So that was like a cool way to like kind of ramp that year back up to to end on a high note and get you ready for uh, the big the big march towards uh, 2018, right? And you yeah. were close for 2014, almost making the Olympics. Yeah, I mean it, it's hard to say exactly how it would have shake, shaken out. I think we only sent two guys. We sent Brad. Uh, Wilson and Pattonine that year and depending on how like the criteria would have worked out I maybe would have been the next guy in line but it's you know obviously those things are hard to quantify yeah I just remember at the bottom of where we were uh, skiing I think at Deer Valley and you got a call to go to like St. Combe ski like one of the world cups there and there was like a less than a 24-hour time period of like Flying, yeah. show up to train, and then you skied really well, right? You ended up taking like fourth or something. Yeah, those were a lot of times when I had like weird situations going into an event or like I trained really poorly or like was injured. Those would be like some of my best events. So, yeah, that scenario was I didn't qualify for St. Combe, but then at the last second somebody got hurt and wasn't going to ski. And I was in the gate of the Deer Valley Noram to get ready for a four run. And Mark Eddy called up on the radio and was like, hey, is Murphy in the gate? And they were like, yeah. He's like, get him out of there. He's flying to St. Combe. So <laughs> we, like, rushed out, went to his house, booked a flight, and I think I landed – or I got to the hotel in Quebec, like, at 3 or 4 a.m. and then competed the next day. So I had, like, two or three training runs in the course. And then, yeah, I ended up getting fourth. That was cool. That's pretty sweet. That's epic. So then also kind of while you're pursuing um, this elite career in mobile skiing, you're also kind of doing a little bit of filming on the side, right? Kind of keep yourself nice and fresh. Yeah, that was like became like a big part of my skiing just for fun was um, going up to Alaska. So I got to do that the first time in um, 2011-12 season probably. Yeah. yeah, 2011, 2012. It was right after I got back from Junior Nationals and this crew from Maine, it was like a local energy drink startup. They were like a drink sponsor of this event called Tailgate Alaska, which happens in Valdez. And okay. invited me to go. And so like I ordered my first pair of powder skis that day and like went up there with like zero idea what we were doing. And we were way over our heads, like trying to snowmobile into these crazy, like big mountain zones, not even knowing how to snowmobile. 
but that <laughs> left, left like a super lasting impression on me and and uh so yeah i've gone to alaska i think seven or eight years since and brought a bunch of teammates like hunter bailey is one of my you know teammates in the ski team he's been up a bunch and that's been like yeah the the thing i look forward to at the end of every year to kind of like get a a re-up on the passion for skiing and just kind of keep it fun again now how many days we usually go when you do a trip like that it was about like roughly like two weeks to a month i would say at first we would like fly up just a bunch of dudes in a van huh yeah, we would rent an RV and then like rent or like buy a snowmobile and leave it on our way out. And then as we got a little more dialed and uh, we would we would start driving up there, trailering up all these snowmobiles and stuff. Pretty, yeah, some crazy times, crazy stories from that, but really fun. How many, how, what's, how, how many people would usually go on the trip with you? Would it just be a couple guys or would you guys usually have like a whole, would you bring a whole RV crew up there to, with, with everyone? It would vary. Like one year, the first year I did it on my own, it was just Hunter and I, which was pretty funny in hindsight, just us trying to figure it out. And then it went to being like, there were four of us plus like a whole crew from Columbia Sportswear came in to like film a little bit. And so that would probably be a crew of like eight or nine and then we had another year where it was us and then a whole another rv of guys from colorado came so it would kind of vary depending on the year okay and how much did you say or would you say that you learned from that to kind of transfer over to some like what kind of perspective did that give you the rest Mm. of uh, your skiing the first perspective is like no mogul course will ever seem scary after you ski in alaska for sure (laughs) ever like it's just so such a different thing up there but uh, I think the biggest one was in like sport you'll always hear about people getting into like flow state or like that point where like you're just on autopilot and your brain just shuts off and your body's just doing what it's supposed to do yeah and I never really found that in competition Mm -hmm. but as soon as I started to get into like some of those really spicy hikes in Alaska like where you're hiking up to your line and it's like cliffs on both sides and huge consequence I like automatically <laughs> found myself slipping into that mode where like it was my brain was just on autopilot and even though I was like super gripped and like this scary situation my body just did everything I didn't even really have to think about it and so I think that once I felt that a couple of times in Alaska then I was able to bring it back more into like the competition gate into in some of like my toward the end of my competition career would you say that it uh it helped yeah for sure uh, I think it definitely helped like just being able to really trust your skiing because in Alaska you like you can't ski some like you're skiing it once for the first time you can't see anything when you're at the top because it like everything rolls over so like you can see your ski tips and then you can see like the bottom of the slope like thousands of feet below and so that feeling of like ang- like nerves is definitely similar to the competition one like a lot of times in the competition you can only see the top air you can't see the rest of the course and it can be like pretty nerve-wracking Mm-hmm. But after being in Alaska, like that feeling was so familiar and so, so much more heightened in Alaska that when it was in competition, it was like mellow. Now, where can, because you got a few of those, uh, those videos are up on the YouTube or where can uh, people go to check those out? Yeah, most of them are on my Vimeo page. So if you go to Vimeo and then search Troy Murphy, like under users, you'll find my profile and they're all on there. Nice. So back, uh, you kind of um, get done with that every 
spring after the season's over, then you're gearing up. And when do you kind of start thinking about uh, 2018? Is it always in the back of your mind or is it one of those things where you're just kind of taking it year to year and ultimately that's where you want to get? But I think both. Um, like it's so, like you're like that thought will always pop into your head, especially after being so close in 2014. Like that thought would always pop into your head, but for the most part, it was like just taking it day by day, training camp by training camp, and then um, yeah. And I think like subconsciously, those big goals are always there, but I think it almost helps if you can kind of block them out and more focus on like the controllables in the moment. Okay, gotcha. So. You move in and let's see, 2016, 2017, you kind of start to grow a little bit more. You're more of a veteran of that World Cup circuit. Mm-hmm. And what, 2017, best, uh, best year, you finished sex, sixth overall, right? Yeah, sixth yeah, overall. Yeah. Sixth in the world. I had like a bunch of, made a bunch of super finals and was skiing really consistent. Yeah, that was definitely. Yeah, one of my best, if not my best year, consistency-wise, it was really good. What would you say was probably uh, the biggest part to help with that? I think that was the year when I started to work with Craig Manning, the Fearless Nine uh, Sports, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably the biggest difference. Because other than that, not much changed. The year before was my worst year. I had a bunch of injuries. And so then to be able to like just block all that stuff out and like have a really dialed journaling system and a really dialed way of like processing what you're doing well and what you need to work on, just simple things like that made a huge difference in that year. Now, what was your, what were the changes like you made in your journaling system? Like how did that create the success for you? Before my journaling would be like really haphazard. It was like, maybe I would do it some days, maybe, you know, I would take a month off from doing it or whatever. And I didn't have like much structure. Um, but Craig had like a really dialed way of keeping your journal points like very, well, first of all, he had like a really good structure. So you would like first wrote what your plan was, like what you were trying to achieve. You, yeah, you'd write your goal for the day, the three things you were going to do to achieve the goal. And then at the end of the day, you would go back and uh, write what you did well and what you did, what you wanted to work on. And then he made a very strong emphasis on having those things be like really concise, like two words at the most and really actionable. So not like not conceptual ideas, but things that you could actually like do with your body. So if it was like you need to work on your takeoff instead of saying like work on takeoff, you would say like arms up or something like that, where it was like actionable things. Mm -hmm. And so by doing those two things, making things very specific and then, putting a lot of emphasis on what you're doing well, then you're always like kind of reinforcing this positive mindset and only focusing on one thing that you need to work on. Gotcha. It sounds like it's a pretty good system. Yeah, it was awesome. That, yeah, made such a huge impact for sure. So now take me into, you come off your best, uh, best season ever, sixth place, and now you're coming into the Olympic year. So what's that uh, prep like? Uh, I mean, we pretty much did all the same, like, camp. I think we did all the same camps for the most part. Everything was kind of the same. It was just maybe, like, a little bit more intensity, like, a little more on the line. Um, But, again, like, subconsciously, that was more in the subconscious. I wasn't really focusing on that. I was just trying to control my controllables and just get as most as I could out of each day. So it wasn't, like, yeah. More on the the day-to-day level, like, when you're going out to the water ramps, when you're going out, you kind of have 
uh, the specific things you're working on, whether it's your takeoff on your double pull or it's technique-wise something, getting a little more backside pressure or working on your hands somewhere. Right. And you're kind of just figuring out. Yeah. Yes, I wouldn't say like that much changed. Maybe it was like a little more motivated to work hard, maybe, but that was never really my problem. I was would kind of like work as hard as I, you know, thought I had the option to. So, yeah, it's more just again focusing on those little yeah the technical skills and and just getting better. How did the qualification process uh, go that season? Um. I never was the guy who like actually paid attention to criteria, like how you actually would make it. I just knew that if I executed as well as I could, um, then things would come together. It's obviously all based off of World Cup results, and it's all the qualifying is done in the year before the Olympics, like in that season. So it's a very short window of time to make it happen. Uh, and I was um, in, at our second World Cup of that year in China. I got my first podium. I got third in China in that. Um, pretty much was enough to qualify me so it was cool that that happened like the time worked out and it um, kind of took a little bit of pressure off it in the build-up to the Olympics. What was the uh, experience like first first podium or where that was in China? Yeah I was in China that was super cool I'd been like so close to the podium for so many years that it was awesome to finally like get on there. Um, one actually cool thing tying back into Alaska that was cool about that event was they had there was like a helicopter flying around at that event. I can't remember why, but right before my super final run, like the last run of that event, the helicopter was like right above the course. And so I felt like I was at the top of like a big Alaska line with like the heli flying around. So that was like pretty cool. Another tie back into that. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. What is it like when you go over and you're competing in China? I had a great China experience. I know like other teammates have had horrible ones. The place we went, Tai Wu, is like a new resort. And so like it almost feels like you're in the veil of China. Like all the hotels are nice. The food is pretty good. Um, but before that, they they were going to this other place in China that sounded a lot more rugged. Um, yeah, but for me, it was good. Like the court, Moga course is pretty sweet. It was kind of firm. Like it was always really cold and not much natural snow. So it was really firm. But um, yeah, it was great. How so? How far? How far is like? How bad's the travel for that? Where do you fly into? Yeah, um, that one was gnarly because we were in Ruka right before that, and we were flying from Ruka around the world to China. We had like a two-day break maybe at home, and then our flight coming from Ruka, which is in Finland, so the flight from Finland home got delayed. We like sat on the plane on the runway for like six hours, and then had deplane. The flight got canceled, got on a flight to the U.S. the next day. I think I had like less than 12 hours at home and then we flew Jeez. to China. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that Olympic year, for some reason, like every single trip we had, something got messed up other than the Olympic flight. Is that one of the hardest things like during the season is just being able to deal with, uh, with all the travel and make sure your body's able to stay fresh when you're just constantly going to, to new places and you're stuck in an airport for... I think it depends on the person. I never had like that much trouble with it. I'm like definitely like a roll with the punches type of guy. And yeah, I didn't never, I mean, traveling all the time wasn't the most fun thing, but like for me, it was almost like you were jet lagged and so tired and it would just compound enough that you would just sleep whenever you could. And it didn't really matter that much. I, I felt. <laughs> so after, um, China, you get a, a few more events after that before the Olympics, or how does that? Uh, yeah, yeah. What did we have? We had like we had 
Deer, we definitely had Deer Valley. We had Calgary, St. or no, Tremblant. I think that was it. When do you get the word that you're going? Right after the last World Cup before the Olympics. So Tremblant was the last World Cup. I think it was like two weeks before or something like that. Um, and after that event, we kind of got like, we had a team meeting and our coach, Mackinosa, like kind of gave us like the unofficial rundown of what things were looking like. And then we all, and we knew it was like, I knew it was looking pretty good and then flew home. And then the next, next day after I got home, I think we got like the official word that, you know, the team was officially announced. Now, what is that process? Cause there's a bunch, there are tons and tons of people that will never get that experience. And what is that like to be able to shoot, you know, you get that call. It's a pretty big call from uh, Gnoza to let you know you've been selected and then mm-hmm. What's the kind of whirlwind of how long, how long do you have before you have to go? A week? Yeah, like a week to 10 days-ish, I think. Um, so short. <laughs> very short, yeah. But then, yeah, that was like one of the coolest times of my life for sure because like you, you just found out that you like achieved like your lifelong goal pretty much. And then um, the whole team came into Deer Valley to train like on a, a mogul course that they built just for us to train on. It was like perfect, really sick mogul course. Um, we went like we got to go to the the u.s ski team headquarters and get all of our like olympic gear and start training in our new gear um there were like press releases and autograph signs just like everything all that cool stuff that associated with like you know you feel like you're almost like a bigger you know, like one of those more professional sport athletes where like all that kind of crazy media attention and everything's like pampered and tailored to you that kind of stuff it was cool so where do you fly out from salt lake or where yeah. you guys- Okay. Yeah, we flew from Salt Lake to yeah to Seoul, and we had like probably two or three days in Seoul for like processing, which is where you get all your other, you know, they go through like your like just briefings and stuff like that, and then you get all your other Team USA opening ceremony gear and things like that. And then uh, after a couple of days in Seoul, then we went to Pyeongchang, and um, we had a bunch of days there too. Like we had probably four days of training before we competed and there's just like a lot more time built in than, than a normal world cup. So when was your event kind of, uh, during the Olympics? Was it in the first few days or was mm-hmm. it? Okay. Yeah. So our qual we our qualifying and finals happened in two separate days and we actually qualified for opening ceremonies. So like, I guess before the games officially started, and then you did qualifying and then did you go to the opening ceremonies or were you guys yeah, okay. yeah that night because then we we went to the opening ceremonies that night um and then the next day we had off and the women competed and then we competed two days after that so i guess our actual comp was two days into the games that's got to be hard like going you go over there early and then it's like the ceremonies that stuff hasn't even begun yet you're already doing like your Olympic qualifying run and all that stuff. And then you have to go to the opening ceremonies. Yeah, it was tough. Like the tougher part for me was just like that, our whole format that we're always used to changed. Like we're used to having two training days and then you compete and it's all in one day. Like you go qualifying final, super final, somebody's the winner all in the matter of one day there like the training days weren't too bad it was kind of nice you had like a lot of time to figure out the course you didn't like you had to like really grind or anything like you could take it slow and make sure your body felt good um and then qualifying was fine like i did really well i actually qualified in fourth and going to opening ceremonies that night was probably like one of the best days of my life because i 
skied really well in my first Olympic run, then got to go to opening ceremonies. But the tough part was then having already having some success in the event, but then having a whole day off to just like chill and try not to think about it, just try to like relax and then compete the next day. For me, that was a tough transition. How hard, how hard is that to not think about where you're sitting and your place? Hard. Like, yeah, consciously you try your best to just relax and not think about it, but subconsciously, like, that's so, yeah, very hard to shut out of your mind for sure. So what do you think of the opening ceremonies? How was that experience? Because, you know, most people, they get that kind of TV visual. They have, uh, you know, uh, the commentary kind of going and everything else where you mm. guys get to walk in the stadium, look around. It's got to be quite the, uh, quite the feeling. Yeah, that was super cool. The interesting thing about it is, like, you miss half of it because we're, like, in this tent with all the countries, and the U.S. is obviously pretty far down on the alphabet, so we were just waiting inside the march so but that was cool because you were like in this big tent with all the countries and you could see like some of the bigger name people in in the tent like you'd recognize people in there and people were like trading you know country pins which is obviously a big olympic thing and then yeah when we finally did start marching it was super cool it was freezing that night and it was really windy and it was an open air stadium so i feel bad for the people that were just chilling watching the whole thing but one thing that was interesting is like the seat, all the seats were there, but then they had like a light, like right above everybody's head. That was part of the show. Like the lights would change colors and the whole stadium would like kind of be a part of the show. But when we walked in, because the light was above everyone, you couldn't tell that people were sitting under the lights. So we like thought it was totally empty, which is pretty funny. Huh. But still super wow. cool. Yeah, to march with that team around the whole thing and then go up to your seats. It was definitely surreal. That's awesome. So then take me through, uh, you finally, you have a couple days to, to sit and think about it and then you, uh, get to the finals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we had the one day off and then went to the finals the next day. I was feeling great. Like I pretty much felt the same as I did on that qualifying day. Um, wasn't too nervous, like in the starting gate or anything, just pretty much normal. Um, maybe like a little more heightened, but that was to be expected and, and kind of good. Like I wouldn't want to be totally just like flatlined up there. I wanted to be excited. <laughs> and yeah, the whole like upper part of my run was good. Landed my double full well, skied the middle section pretty well, and then had like the tiniest little, a tiny mistake on my bottom air, which was not very characteristic of me. But, um, you know, at that stage, like one mistake is enough to keep you out of the, out of the game. Gotcha. Now, did you talk to Craig beforehand? Sorry, Siri just yelled at me you there. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> did you get to talk to Craig Manning before? Were you kind of talking with him as you were going through that, uh, those stages, um, you know, those days off kind of leading up to that? A little bit. Um, our thing was always like trying to not make it so like I was relying on him as like a crutch. Like I definitely wanted to still be independent. And this is his thing too. Like you still want to be independent so that if you weren't able to talk to him it's not like your whole thing was ruined so okay uh, pretty much our routine would be like right before a competition i would just i would just message him like the three things i was going to work on and he would just say yeah it looks good or hey maybe shorten this one thing up to make it more actionable so that was really it like it wasn't too in depth or anything which i think is a good thing i think yeah you can definitely like if you don't get the long talk with your sports like you get all freaked out like we didn't want to have that situation sure so now you go through, you get your Olympic experience in, and after that's kind of done, you know, you had a couple mistakes, didn't quite get the uh, result that you wanted. 
Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what feelings are you left with? Um, definitely bummed for sure. <laughs> like that was op- once op- an opportunity that comes around once in four years and I had skied so well on the qualifying day. Like I was really like excited and fired up to like do well. And so that one mistake was definitely a bummer, but, um, uh, once that like initial kind of sting of not doing well went away, it was still cool. You know, it's still a super cool experience to have made it that far and have been a part of team USA. And then the kind of nice thing was we were early in the game. So we like got to go and check out a bunch of other events and things like that. So at first, definitely a bummer. But if you learn anything in this sport, it's like how to handle those disappointments, which there are a ton of. So kind of just another one of those disappointments. Now, did you obviously family, uh, girlfriend, all that stuff was over there. Mm-hmm. And did they stay stick around the whole time? Like, did were they allowed to go to the events with you or how did that kind of have that work? No, they stayed a couple days after. Um, Trying to think, but you know, I I think just a day or two after my event, really. So I got to spend some time with my parents the night after the event, and then Shelby, uh, my fiance, and I got to go to Seoul and hang out for a couple days there. So that was pretty cool. Um, It was my dad's first time out of North America, which is crazy, and I think my mom's only second time. So they actually came to Seoul. How much of a culture shock was that? <laughs> I mean, they loved it. My mom was like in her element. It was awesome. So that was one of the coolest parts. It was like getting to be there with them and like share that experience with them. Cause they obviously sac- sacrificed a ton to get me there. Awesome. That's good that they were, uh, they were able to be there. So after you go through, you um, take full advantage of everything over there. Cause what they got the, like the, uh, McDonald's, which is like all you can eat, you can get as much. Yeah. As you, right? Like, what's the, with the sponsorship there? It's pretty nice in the Olympic Village, right? Yeah, we our Olymp- There was two Olympic Villages. There's like the Mountain Cluster and the Coastal Cluster, which is where like the skating and, um, yeah, I guess mainly just skating events were down there. Um, so that's where the McDonald's was. So we took a trip down there and <clears throat> went to the McDonald's, and they had like along the beach. They had a bunch of like these really cool wooden, like almost like Burning Man type structures that we like checked out. And I guess they would burn one of those each like each night of the games, which we didn't stay for. Really? Yeah, that was cool. Um, we went to a short track speed skating event, which like super cool. I didn't expect that to be as entertaining as it was. That was probably the most fun thing I went to. Um, we went to a USA Canada women's hockey game. Uh, that was awesome. Yeah, so I just checked out a bunch of different events. And then Casey Andringa, a teammate, and I actually bounced out of the Olympics early and went to Japan to ski powder for like the last week before our next World Cup. So that was super cool. Like the highlight of the trip was almost going to Japan and skiing powder. <laughs> skiing powder after <laughs> I expect nothing less. That's, uh, that's pretty sweet. So, um, how what's the feeling like getting back to you still have a season to finish yeah like, we what that. Is that like after you have this big build up and there's you know you have the big break too how, how is it trying to refocus and get back ready for the rest to finish out the season that was pretty challenging for me anyway because yeah we on to japan casey and i and we ski powder for like every day for like a week and it was like unreal conditions so much fun and so to like get back into the grind of like a regular season mogul comp was challenging for me mm-hmm. for sure the cool part about it was like you still got to see all, like all your friends like international friends from the olympics and um people who didn't make it like it's cool to have that world cup gang back together yeah um, but yeah the competing part was challenging for sure <laughs> 
And so when do you start? Cause you ended up retiring after, after that year, when do those thoughts start to happen? Pretty much immediately after the games. Like I didn't think about it at all before then, which I'm super grateful for. And then right after the games, it was like, you know, I felt like I had gotten a lot out of the sport. Like most of the lessons I was going to learn, I had gotten it. And so I started to think about it right after the games. And then once we got to Japan and started steaming powder every day, I was like, yeah, there's, I'm definitely done competing. Like I just want to do this. Um, so yeah, that trip to Japan was definitely like solidified the idea that I wanted to ski more powder and, and not, uh, you know, cause the thing about mogul skiing was I loved it and I loved the training part of it. But mm-hmm. at a certain point I felt like I was losing out on a lot of skiing for feet, like for fun, like skiing for me type stuff. So that was like kind of like the final time where I knew I wanted to do something different. Put a stamp, put a button on it, put a bow on it. Yeah, exactly. Now you talk about some of the lessons you, you kind of gained all the lessons that you could, or at least that you thought you could at that point. What mm. were like some of those biggest lessons and takeaways that you could uh, use for the rest of your life or that would um, pertain to not just stuff on the hill, but every day? Yeah, I feel like all, pretty much all of them were things that I could apply to everyday life. And I would almost say like everything I've come to learn this far has been as a result of skiing, like work, whether it's work ethic or um, learning how to be coached, like learning how to be coachable to take feedback and, and use it as positive rather than a negative. Um, I'm trying to think of like some of the big ones, but it's hard because I feel like everything I learned was a big lesson and, and everything I learned was the result of skiing. I don't know if that, if that makes sense, but no, it makes sense. I think the, probably the biggest one is just learning about yourself and like how you, where you perform well and where, like where your strengths and weaknesses are and how you can kind of manage those as you go through life to make sure you're, you know, always on that like peak performing path. Now, so you finished out that season, last event, you skied us nationals did when, did everyone know that you were going to be done or did you kind of just. Yeah. At least like everyone on the world cup, all the coaches and all my, all the athletes on the world cup knew. And then, yeah, people obviously like the rest of the kind of U S skiing community probably found out there. God, yeah. I think that's where I found out there mm-hmm. or yeah, right around. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Um, now, what were your thoughts for next steps? Did you just want to go into pro skiing and do kind of filming and backcountry and stuff like that because you had such a passion for it or was it got to go back, get some schooling done? Yeah, both. I knew that for sure. I like wanted to do school and like start ramping up for like a real career, like a real job type of thing. Cause I don't, I definitely didn't want to be like a ski bum forever. And I think it's easy to get trapped. Like, doing just coaching for a while or doing you know trying to like be yeah, that pro ski videographer but I think like all that stuff is very there's like a definite end point and so I didn't want to be like I stuck like just putting all his eggs in one basket but I also knew I wanted to do one at least one winter where I was just traveling skiing backcountry and doing that kind of stuff for fun so that was the plan for that next year I, I did school all summer and fall and then as soon as fall break started I took the whole spring semester off um and traveled with one of my childhood buddies chris lee from maine and we just like he had a trailer and we had our snowmobiles and we just like cruised around all in north america just skiing backcountry it was super fun what were some of the best spots um alaska was obviously like a highlight and then last year 
Montana, we had really good conditions in Montana. We were in just north of Missoula, and then we were also in Cook City, and those were probably the two best best trips. You didn't get in, like, you didn't go backcountry Killington or <laughs> Lowe's or anything like that? Um, I did, actually, kind of. I went home to Maine and brought my pow surfboard and, and did some pow surfing in the woods. But, yeah, it wasn't a highlight. I wouldn't say. Oh, okay. <laughs> So uh, you're kind of back finishing up school, stuff like that, and then you're started to transition. You do a little bit of coaching as well on the side, right? Yeah, coaching is something I've kind of always done, or at least since like probably 2012. I would coach in the summers for Glenna Head Ski Camp, Planet Ski International in Whistler. Um, so I'd coach at that camp for like a month every year, and then I ended up coaching a little bit for like Park City team at the water ramps in the summer times. A little bit for a telluride at the water at the water ramps and then this year took on the role as the head coach of the park city team um with jeff yingling who was the guy who like first got me into the sport he was the director and i was the head coach so that's been a pretty cool experience kind of bringing it all full circle what is the the different dynamic now that you're kind of on the other side and you're actually trying to get people to listen to you yeah um it's interesting like you definitely realize, or I definitely realize, I think like there's a lot of ego in the coaching world and I knew I didn't want to be like one of those guys. And so it's all about just like giving the athletes every opportunity you can to help them, but you can't think that you're like the make or break person for them. So I definitely realized that like the athletes I was coaching, they were doing it all themselves. And I was just there to like offer a little bit of feedback or try to get them excited or try to like point out one little thing they could do to get better. But I think it's important to like let them um kind of figure it out for their own a little bit like you can't be like the only motivating factor for them like if they want to do it they're going to do it if they don't want to do it they're not going to do it type of thing so you're just there kind of like as a guide but but they have to figure it out for themselves and that's important like I wouldn't want to be the one that's like totally dictating their their career like they have to like learn those lessons for sure gotcha yeah no definitely uh that helps with with their own uh, transition, right? And trying yeah. to figure out what they want to accomplish. Totally. Yeah, and it's, it's just more meaningful. Like when they had like some say in the matter, like they they were the ones making the decisions and it pays off and it's awesome. And if they were the ones making some decisions and they didn't pay off, then they'll learn from it. Did you feel that it was easier to help game plan for them and allow them to uh, reach what they wanted to? having the all the experience and all the knowledge of all the stuff that you've kind of been through do you feel like that made life pretty easy for them or did it make it more difficult because you knew exactly what steps it took for you and how it worked and it's harder to make that transition for them i think a little bit of both like in some or some situations my <clears throat> my experience and like expectations would be maybe higher. And I would, have, I would like find myself having to think back to like when I was in high school, what was I doing? And the answer is like, not much. So, <laughs> so it was like having to like bring it back to reality a little bit. Like these are kids, they're in high school. Like you gotta like realize what, what stage of life they're in. Yeah. Um, but then like, yeah, from like a tactical standpoint, like trying to figure out what they're supposed to do on the hail or like what they could work on. Like that was super easy. I'd, I've been doing that for my whole life. So it's like a little bit of a balance between like, yeah, managing expectations, but then like also like giving them, you know, the appropriate amount of like intensity and programming and stuff like that. Gotcha. 
So um, plans kind of moving forward, are you going to continue doing a little bit of coaching or where, uh, what are the next steps? Yeah, I don't, I'm not, that's kind of like up in the air. I got to definitely like my main focus is finishing up school and finishing strong. So got to make sure that that's happening. And then, um, so it'll kind of be based around that. And obviously right now, these are kind of crazy times. We're in this whole coronavirus situation. So yeah, this was, this was supposed to take place in uh, person, but uh, you know, yeah, right. we got to kind of move on the fly and make it work this way. The next one, next one will be in person, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'd say right now it's just kind of up in the air. Like who knows what's going to happen with this whole climate, but um, yeah, make sure I finish up school and then try to, get some experience in a more real career and kind of figure out things from there. Now you have another uh, personality that has kind of become much bigger than you. Mm -hmm. That's true. Your boy, Donnie, right? Yeah, Donnie Pelletier, he's that Mainer from, from Bethel who kind of steals all my thunder. Now, how, how did that start? Um, super organically. Shelby and I were just skiing at Park City on closing day um right after that olympic year i think yeah and uh it was like clown day so everybody dresses up as whatever and goes skiing it's like a kind of big party at the end of the year on the hill and we both dressed up as mainers and i had her film like just a couple of clips of me like skiing kind of like a goon and that blew up it got like one million post reach on facebook and so <laughs> yeah it just kind of took on a life of its own from there so he, uh, he now you're making a bunch of videos as him, right? You kind of keeping uh, keeping the myth alive, keeping yeah, Donnie sure. going. I've definitely been slacking a little bit this winter. It's been so busy, but yeah, the goal is to keep Donnie keep Donnie going, find new uh, experiences for him to get into, and you know keep keep people laughing, keep it fun. So have you uh, kind of curtailing on that? Have you been able to? Uh, go back and kind of give back to uh, the community back home and Bethel and Gould and stuff like that. You go yeah, back to the sure. river, right? Pretty fair amount. Yeah, I go back quite a bit. Um, and yeah, I definitely like, like to give back as much as I can back there, whether it's like coaching some of those athletes or <clears throat> I've been running fundraisers there for like pretty much my whole, the whole later part of my career to try to make money for it. And now that I don't need that money, we're still trying to keep those fundraisers going and kick, kick that money back to like the local ski club for athletes to use as they kind of come up on their, on their journey. That's uh, awesome. so, yeah. It's mostly things like that. Like the fundraiser is a big one working with athletes. When I get the chance, it's a big one. How, uh, how often is that? Do you do your fundraiser? Uh, it's usually every October. Every, golf October. every October. Yeah. And so does that, funding every year just go back to the ski team or do you kind of pick a different thing in the community to to donate it towards so far it's gone back to that local ski club yeah the sunday river ski and snowboard club um yeah i would know we haven't really had much time to think about the future of it yet but that's been the kind of the move so far and has that how much has that kind of helped them it's made it uh, grow quite a bit I think so. I think last year we were able to get, I oh mean, I don't actually don't even remember the figures, but um, basically like all that money just goes into like a, a fund where local kids can apply for grants. Like say a kid got qualified for nationals and doesn't maybe have the money to afford like the plane ticket. He can apply for a grant to get that paid for by the ski club. So, and I used that when I was coming up as a kid, like I would definitely 
apply for grants for certain trips and and they came through for me so it's cool to be able to provide that opportunity that's awesome mm -hmm. so are you every time you go back i mean bethel's only like 2800 people so are you pretty big uh pretty big celebrity back there whenever you get to go home um donnie is more of a celebrity than me but for me it's cool <laughs> just because yeah we do know like a lot of folks in town now so it's more about like seeing old friends and just connecting with people that you haven't seen in a long time donnie's taking over yeah, Donnie is more of the celebrity figure back there for sure. <laughs> so, uh, some main kind of takeaways for you um, to kind of give to other people, offer up. What would you say uh, they can really take away to be more successful in their everyday lives, whether it comes into uh, setting goals or kind of game planning for the future? Right. Yeah, there's a ton, but I think like the two biggest ones um, would be like making sure you're passionate and making sure you're always learning something. So when it comes to passion, like I am the type of guy who like needs to make sure I'm having, getting outside, having fun, like, getting some activity, getting some like energy outlets. And that just makes me so much happier and like able to work on stuff and progress. So uh, making sure I'm like enjoying what I'm doing and uh, if I'm not enjoying it, making sure I kind of have some kind of outlet to um, get, you know, just refresh and reset. So that's a big one. And then the other one learning to me, like uh, you just have to continually learn like and, and continually want to get better at whatever it is you're doing. So yeah. I'm the type of person who's not very good at being mediocre at stuff. Like I always have to try to be as good as I possibly can be, whether that's like a, math assignment or learning something new like playing hockey which I started picking up on lately but yeah it's just about learning new things keeping your your like always broadening your horizons and uh and to me that just brings with it so many opportunities and so many doors to to open awesome well uh Todd, you got any plugs where can uh people kind of uh follow along and keep up on uh the life of Troy Murphy um, yeah, the main one's probably just Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Troy underscore Murphy. Um, you can follow Donnie on there too. Donnie Pelletier 207. Um, that's probably it. I kind of am a little bit less active on the social media these days as life gets busier and focusing on other things, but I'm still on there sometimes. And then, uh, Vimeo as well. If you want to watch some Vimeo uh, for all my, like, yeah, all my backcountry ski stuff. That's, I'm pretty proud of some of that stuff. So yeah, definitely check that out. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, my man. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here, uh, episode one, especially uh, I'm with everything else uh, going on. You know, like I said, I wanted to do this in person, but uh, the, the next one. Next yeah, one. no, I'm honored to be on episode one. Thanks, Bob. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. and uh, forward to seeing the next guest. Who's it going to be? Sterling Krishamana? Oh, uh, I don't know about that. We shall see. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Bye, okay. everybody. See you. Hope you enjoyed this episode, folks. Thanks a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. This is your host, Bobby Carroll, signing off.